Hello and welcome to the next episode of The Podcast, a cannabis podcast for budding enthusiasts. This episode, as always, was brought to you by 420 Australia, your premier store for all things lifestyle and apparel, as well as Team OGS, your one-stop shop for all things organic gardening. On this episode, we're really excited to have Banana Man all the way from Spain to talk about all things EU, as well as the breeding scene and some history. Stay tuned for an awesome episode. Here we go. Alrighty, a big thank you and welcome to Banana Man of Tricomb Jungle, our first guest from across the pond in the EU. Thanks for joining us. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. So, first question as always, you probably know what it is. What was your introduction to cannabis? Right, probably about um, 14, uh, smoking with friends um, would have been some rock and hash mixed with tobacco um that's the sort of way that a lot of people in the uk sort of smoked it at that time so yeah that was the first experience didn't really get high from it um probably too much tobacco mixed with it but probably two weeks three weeks after that um same group of friends we got together and we smoked it in a bong, and I definitely got high anyway. I couldn't move off that couch for a while. <laughs> I don't suppose you remember what strains were going around back then. Was it just just whatever? I mean, back in the days of hash, it kind of wasn't really strains, but I don't know. What was it? No, we had, we had a lot of like import, like Thai stick coming in, and also like brick weed from Africa and places like this, um, very seeded, but um, the first time I ever smoked the African, like, I got a high that was unlike anything I'd experienced from hash, the feeling in my legs, the tingling feelings, almost like psychedelic to some extent, and from that day, I just always ask the guy can can you get more of this 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 is the stuff that i want to smoke i don't want to be smoking the hash anymore um so that's what i try to find more of um but at the time there wasn't really any skunk or anything like this so that's interesting there's like a few points in that one i guess it goes without saying your favorite land race is african um, yes, because of the memories it being, brings back, definitely, and the high, the high that it has, it has something special about it, the African weeds. The thing which is really interesting about the Africans is, is there's actually a fair bit of diversity within the African land races, but, you know, obviously Durban poison just gets the main rap. Do you think it was Durban poison that you smoked as a kid or something else? Because the thing which people often mention about Durban poison is, it's not all that potent. So based off your story, I would almost tend to think it probably wasn't. What do you think? No, I'm going to say it was probably something like like a Malawi. Interesting. And you think it was like the full-on cob type thing or just some Malawi? Um, well, because of the color of it, um, it had this like almost golden edge to it. So from... Looking into it a little bit more, I'd say it could have been some sort of Malawi cob type thing. Okay, interesting. Have you ever toyed around with doing that yourself with any modern stuff? Like you're doing the cob method? 
we did. Me and a friend, a friend of mine grew out of Malawi gold. Um, he vegged it outside in the UK uh, for most of the season and brought it in to flower it at the end. And flowered it for like almost I think, 22 weeks. And the plant was huge. It was just one plant grown under four, four hundred. And yeah, again, the high off that was amazing. And we tried to make some cobs out of that and bury them in the ground. So yeah, that was that was a fun experience. That's full on. And so, have you ever considered trying to find that stuff and breed with it, or is it just considered gone in your mind? Um, I do have some Malawi seeds that a friend collected while he was out in Malawi. Um, I'm, I'm yet to start them. They're they're still in the collection. Um, hope to pop them maybe one day soon. And so, if we rewind back. What was your first grow like? You know, what strains were you running and what type of technology were you using? Okay. Um, so the first strain would have been, okay, okay, this is how it goes. It came, my, my friend was growing out the strain. We'd, we'd got a light. We'd set it up in his room and we were growing a, a tie, some Thai seeds. But at this time, we hadn't really figured out the whole twelve twelve thing. And it, the plant was just growing, and we sort of scrapped the idea after that. Later on, I got some Hindu Kush seeds, and I found a book um, in an like, old little bookstore. And this book like said in it about the whole 12-12 light regime, and it was just like a, a light bulb moment. So I got my plant, I got the Hindu Kush seeds, planted them, and set up the light and away I went and I was basically just feeding it basic stuff yeah it's like I got some chicken poo I got some wood ash and that's what I was basically feeding the plant it was very basic and so just to fast forward for a quick second what's your growth style now you know are you organic bottled synthetic um I've pretty much grown every single way um, for the last couple of years, I've been doing a lot of cocoa growing, um, using bottled feeds, and also did, did a bit of hydro. But this was more to do with like really testing my plants and seeing what did well in certain situations. Um, with a hydro, I could do a lot of tests about removing certain nutrients and seeing which plants drink more. Um, which plants take up more nutrients, stuff like this. But now I'm actually going back to my original way of growing, which I'd always grown, which is organic, but without the bottle feeds and making more of my own ferments and teas and stuff like this, which I do outdoors. So I'm bringing my outdoor organic method now indoors. So you've got some pretty insane photos of your strains, not necessarily all of them from your garden, but, you know, some really full-on photos, just towering colas, things like that. Do you feel like when that level of quantity is being produced from a single plant, it is at the detriment of other qualities, like, you know, quality? Yes. I've noticed in the past with a lot of strains that are big yielding, they tend to lack quality. But obviously through, through selection and the gene pools that we are using now, you can achieve both, yeah. Um, 
But saying that, my the plants that I prefer the most are on the more medium side of yield. But the new that the jungle juice, which uh, what I'm smoking today, that has both the quality and the yield. The yields are like outstanding, and people just keep picking this over everything at the moment. So, um, yeah, you can get both definitely. So if we just go back now for a moment, how was it that you decided to get into breeding? Was it like a eureka moment on your own? Was it you thought you could improve on what was already there or was it just a bit of an accident? The first one was a bit of an accident. It was um, a blueberry that hermed and pollinated some of uh, the stuff stuff in the room that me and a friend were growing, which at the time was uh, White Widow, um, a hemp star, bubble gum. We had a skunk number one, a Mr. Nice, hash plant. We were growing a lot of hash plant at the time as well, and a lot of Casey brains things. So a few things got pollinated by the blueberry, and I started germinating the seeds, and that's when I realised like we're not getting any males, and they're all feminised seeds. And that's when I realised that we'd made like feminised seeds. Um, it was probably a few years later from that point that I was growing a lot of like Dutch seed companies out and just found them being quite lacking. And that's when I thought, right, I think I can actually make something a little bit better than this. So I already had a plant that we call Nap, which was like a Hindu Kush type plant, which was like super resinous. Um, like knockout sleepy type of high and but the the flavor was maybe lacking it had this slight like aniseed hashy type taste and so I thought I can improve on that and I crossed the Santa Maria Hayes male onto that and this is what later on went to make the mantis which is one of my like first main breeding project where I had I had a goal at the end. Yeah, and so, I mean, if we look at the mantis for a quick moment, online, the genetics listed is Nap cross to Santa Maria Hayes. Was it a Santa Maria Hayes hybrid or just Santa Maria? No, Santa Maria Hayes. I found it in some Hayes uh, flower that I was smoking in Holland. And I found like five seeds in it. So I spoke to the guy in the coffee shop and he told me that uh, he had a Santa Maria male that had probably pollinated it. So I took those seeds home thinking uh, they might be feminized. We'll see if he's telling the truth. And I got uh, two females and three males and did the selection from them. So... Mantis went on to do a few different projects. The one I'm interested in is the Cali Schnapple Kush. Now, Cali Schnapple clone from Sonic. There's also another one in the States from Dynasty, just so everyone knows. Not talking about that one, talking about the one from Sonic. What is it about the Mantis OG hybrid? You know, you found the one you're after. What was it about that that you were thinking, this is going to pair really well with the Cali Schnapple? Um, It was mainly to add, I wanted to add a little bit more of that OG sort of flavour into the Cali Schnapple. Because the Cali Schnapple, 
has an amazing flavour, but I just wanted to bring something more to it. So that's adding that male was the idea of that. Um, but the Cali Snapper on its own is an amazing plant, like super tropical sort of flavours that come off it. Amazing. And the yield's huge. Yeah, one the biggest plants I've grown. Full on. So just looking back at a comment you made before about getting those seeds from Amsterdam, almost some parallels with the uh, Mr. Soul story from Brothers Grimm. What did the females turn out like from that? Because, you know, you used the mantis males or females. Was it the males? Yeah, I used a male from them uh, yeah. onto the female nap, yeah. So the, f the females that came from those seeds, uh, one of them was like a haze, but with a little bit more structure to it. Um, and the other one had this sort of lime turp, which is what you get in the mantis. And so would you ever consider like F2ing and just further line breeding it or is it just more of like a breeding I have tool? done the mantis now I've taken I've made the F2 line which I did release um cannabis did a nice article on, on them there was a little bit of variation but so so much less variation than I would expect yeah and then I took it to F3 I've made um <clears throat> two batches of F3 and release one of them and then this year I'm going to take it to F4. What do you expect out of the F4s? I mean given the F2s didn't show all that much variation as one might expect you'd similarly think the F4s would be pretty limited in their variation as well right? Yeah and I'm going to do the F4s from a much larger population as well um, so I'm going to probably use like five females and maybe two two or three males from a selection of maybe 50 or 100 and then that will be the the f4s that i'll finally release again and so that's interesting i've been talking to a few people about this idea would you then want to release those seeds as labeled like just just a mixture from all of them and that's just you know it all just comes from one batch or would you want to isolate individual females and be like you're buying a packet from this female because a few breeders have done that before like uh, dungeon vault he does that with a few different phenotypes of a few different strains but i think it'd be interesting if more people got on board or do you just think for in terms of like not bottlenecking things you just want to mix it all together and release it like that yeah for that reason so it doesn't bottleneck the the, the genetics um, but I would definitely use the, the five females that I would use would all be five females that all resemble each other still I wouldn't want it to be too varied the main thing I go for with the with the mantis is that the the lime the lime like opal fruits do you know opal fruits no I'm not um, familiar with them <laughs> okay we had like opal fruits I think they're called starburst now but um oh, okay. You get you, you get the green ones, and it just just reminds me of having them as a kid. So that's the main thing I go for with the mantis. And so, if we look at some of the other lines you've line breaded, the I'm going to say this wrong. Is it the Purasang or the Persang? Okay, the Persang. Yeah, that that's that was a, a sonic thing. Um, he selected that from seeds from Barney's. Um, coffee shop 
um, he got them from from Derry, and I remember seeing it in the Canna Bible, Jason King's Canna Bible, and he mentions it in there, the Persang Haze. But I think Sonic was the only guy who who actually kept those seeds going and bred that line. So it's he he line bred it. I just took it to F four um, later on. Um, so it was mainly his work. Um, but yeah, he, he uses a Persang in a lot of his crosses and I've used that breed in male as well. And yeah, it's a, it's a great male and great plant to use as a super like, like I won't, I won't want to compare it to amnesia, but it has that similar terp to amnesia, but much more sativa and much more fruity, almost like bubblegum fruity, like an old super silver haze or something. It's interesting. I was going to ask, what, what do you like about it? But you just kind of banged it out. So something that's been kind of popped up in a few of the answers is, you know, this underlying theme of Dutch genetics and, you know, things coming from Holland. How do you feel Holland influenced the landscape of the UK breeding scene? Because I think, like, for me personally, from the outside point of view, it seemed like for a while when Holland first started to stagnate in, say, the early 2000s, kind of felt like that rippled a bit to the UK. How do you feel about that? Yeah, and I think this is when you've seen an uh, influx of more people actually selecting things and keeping more clones and actually making their own seeds around this sort of time. Um, yeah, definitely. Like... Uh, the one main strain that I think played a big role in the UK is the UK cheese, which also came from Dutch seeds, you know, skunk number one. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like synonymous in the UK, like good weed is just called skunk in many places. I remember at least when I was there in 2010, like hydro was called skunk, like, you know, like, like good indoor quality, high quality weed was skunk and the other stuff That's was skunk. just import. Do you feel like there were some kind of unsung heroes in terms of strains that did help build the scene? Like, I've only recently become aware of it through a few friends. Um, shout out to Vic Firth. But uh, Psychosis, you know, that's from like the same, the Exodus crew, those same guys who did the cheese. Are there any other ones that you know of that you feel like did really help build the scene but maybe didn't get that spotlight because cheese was like the poster child? Yeah, um, <clears throat> there's a couple of strains that uh, there was about. There was one that we kept coming across uh, called I. Just it was just called I. It was almost along those same sort of like fruity skunk lines, that like typical Dutch skunk, but on that fruity side. Um, and yeah, that was one that stood out for me. Um, yeah, definitely. It was um, it was later on that like the nap that clone that I passed around to quite a few people, um, and yeah, I suppose the psychosis was always a nice standout strain. It's very similar in to, in terms of with cheese. Like if you were to put them both in the in the same jar, I think you'd struggle to to pick them out. Yeah, it all comes down to who grows it, and yeah, I think that that plays a big role. And so how do you feel about the way things are now in the UK where, you know, at least for the masses, Cali is king and it seems like, you know, those import packs are like 
the be all end all. Do you think this is a healthy culture or it's maybe detracting from what's a really blooming scene at the moment? Yeah. Um I I yeah, the whole the the Cali packs and stuff like this, it's all gone a bit crazy. The whole the prices and stuff like that that I've heard of that these things go for is just unbelievable. Um I've not tried a lot of these sort of like new Cali elites, yeah. But from what I hear from a lot of my friends, again, it all depends on who's grown it. And I think a lot of these things that are coming over to the UK are probably stuff that they can't sell in a lot of places that probably would fail a lot of tests. It's certainly interesting, the idea. If we jump there to clones... What do you feel about clones? It seems like, you know, with the uh, advent of clone shippers existing, the number of clones in different countries, particularly the UK, has just gone through the roof. I've seen people in the UK with clones that I would almost swear would still be incredibly hard to get in, in the USA, you know, like they seem so tightly held. Do you think that a lot of the stuff that is being flaunted around is real? I almost get the impression that maybe... People are just getting S1s or, you know, because like, for example, if you say I've got sour diesel, you're probably familiar with the situation. It's like, is it the real sour diesel? And so, you know what I mean? Do you feel like a lot of the stuff that's coming in is the real deal or maybe people are just a bit optimistic or maybe getting swindled or, you know, somewhere in the middle? Yeah, I think there's a lot of clones of each thing and people will find a bag seed and whatever they find in, that's what they'll name it. So, yeah, I imagine that a lot of these clones aren't the original ones. Um, yeah, I'd agree, I'd agree to say that, yeah. So how do you go about sourcing your clones if there's something kind of in the US and maybe you're not really, sorry, and um, and maybe, you know, without obviously talking about getting it to Spain, like, do you find it's hard to source things or does... Spain scene got plenty to offer. Where does that stand for you as a breeder? Yeah, I, I tend to work with a lot more seeds, to be honest, now. I used to work more with clones and elite clones, like the SFV, the Bubba. I've just got the Bubba back from a friend, um, so I'll definitely be working with that more. But the rest of the US elite things, um, I'm not too bothered about getting as the original clone. Like, I've got crosses where i know the originals have been used people like from canarado and people like that um so yeah I, I i prefer to do that and i think a lot of the problems come from sharing clones you see and with america having a big problem with like russet mites pm um i'd rather not take in clones from places like that do you feel like you can almost stand behind your work more when you're using both mother and father that you've found from seed? Yes, because then it's fully your selection on both sides. Um, I think we can select our own elites. I think most people can even select elites from packets of seeds of mine. So I think a lot of it is hype. Um I think it, I, I could select a plant and give it to a certain person if they hyped it the way they'd hyped other strains, it would become just as popular. Um, so, yeah, I think that plays a big role. I find a lot of these elites that I've spoken to, friends, they say that 
some of them are not even that stand out compared to other stuff that they've selected or tried from me. So, um, yeah. Interesting you bring that up because I've kind of been having thoughts like that myself. I, I pop a lot of seeds pretty regularly and I guess I just commonly think to myself like, geez, I'm finding a lot of keepers. And then like I look at the numbers and it seems pretty proportional. But um, yeah, that's always made me think like, is the bar low or what? So here's the question. How often is it you come across a plant you've popped from a seed and you're thinking to yourself, wow, this this is really like, you know, a notch above what I would normally consider a good plant. This is like, a, you know, like definitely clone only, possibly one of the best plants I've ever grown. You know, how often does that happen? Quite regular, to be honest. Um, especially if you're growing things from, if the person sent you a packet, of something like I, I recently grew up the the Bodhi uh, soulmate. Um, he sent me a few packets of different things, and like there was a little bit of variation. But there's there's two females from the soulmate that could easily both be elite strains. The smells off them, the growth on them is amazing. I'm yet to try them both, but I know that's going to come through on the flavour. So yeah, um, both um, both standout plants and I see this a lot I've just grown out some stuff from Canarado amazing plants again so this is what I, I, I work towards this is what I want everybody else to have they, they grow a packet of my of my seeds and they find out of a 10 pack five plants that they're going to struggle to pick a keeper from yeah it's always a good problem to have when you've got to uh, pick your keeper isn't it too many to choose from Yes, yeah, this is what what everybody should be getting from their seeds. Yeah, we have such a gene pool to to choose from nowadays. It's not like it was like 10 years ago. Um, so everything that people are breeding, um, people should be able to find uh, keepers in every packet, especially if people are putting the work in as well. I see a lot of just people releasing a lot of F1s, but... I would like to go down that line myself more just because I can get through more strains in a shorter amount of time. And I think that's the the line I'm going to be going more towards because I like popping seeds all the time, making new things all the time. So, yeah, definitely go along those lines. So, interestingly, Mandarin is one of the ones I knew from you before I'd ever done any serious kind of research. You know, I always do some good research before every interview so after i kind of looked into it a little more seriously quickly noticed one half of its age in orange um and the thing which kind of jumped to mind at that is is you probably haven't heard it but we recently did an interview with james bean and he actually posed the you know the proposition that tangy is possibly just an age in orange offspring or s1 or maybe just a cut of it saying that he had done some phylos testing and that was what it indicated Surely you've grown tangy. It's big all around the world. Did you see any similarities between the Asian orange you use for mandarina and tangies? Would you feel like there's maybe any similarities between them? There are some similarities. Um, I always said that tangy was a NYC diesel. Uh, that's what I always thought it was because they have a NYC diesel clone that I found, found out recently that goes around Spain. And they call this the mandarina cut. And when I found that, I was like, that, that's, that's, that's like tangy. 
So that just reinforced the thoughts that I sort of already had that Tangy was a NYC diesel, but it could easily be a Agent Orange because I find these same when I've crossed the Mandarina with other things like the sour diesel. I get those same terps coming out, like the NYC diesel, tangy type things. Whereas mandarina is a lot more sweeter, fizzy, sherbet type orange smells. Well, what's interesting to me is like you made mandarina a few years ago now. However, as far as I can tell from the timeline, you made it just kind of before, right when the whole hype around the citrus terpene was just taking off. And obviously... Tangy was a big proponent of that. But did you have any idea that was going to come about? Like, did you have a sense that this kind of, you know, orangey mandarin terpene profile was about to just take the scene by storm? Or was it a bit of a fluke? Like, seems like it came out at a perfect time. Yeah, like, we really enjoyed the Agent Orange from Subcool. That, that, that was just a standout plant. We passed that clone around to so many people. Um, so working with that was just, we were going to do it anyway because it was such a nice plant. Um, I thought the orange thing was fizzling out to be honest, because so many people were getting tired of that orange turp, but I think the new generation and how things come around in circles, like with fashion and everything else, um, things make a comeback. And I think that it was perfect timing that they sort of, yeah, that came back as I was working the Mandarina line. And what was it about the, you know, the male you used in that cross that was right? The UK pineapples, some Shiva in there, and even dynamite? What was it about that which you thought just paired well with it? Because essentially it seems like it's imparted, how would you put it, kind of mellowed a bit of the sugariness, at least I'm the, the Agent Orange I'm familiar with like a sweet orange. So like mandarina, you know, it's added like a bit of sourness, taking a bit of sugariness. What do you think the male brought to the table? Yeah, the, the Pinamite Shiva male, um, I mainly was putting that onto the cheese and the pineapples to do like almost like a pineapple back cross and also to cross it with the cheese because of that skunkiness. Um, at the time... I had a, a pot of gold. It was also a nice, like, sweet, skunky apple sort of turp going on with that one. I thought I'd cross that with that. So I was going for a skunky type thing. This is what I was working. But then I had the Agent Orange. I had the Crowberry. I had the Bubba Kush. And also the Jack's Cleaner clone from Subcool. So at the time I thought, okay, well, I'll pollinate them at the same time. So they were all just real experimental, whereas that's why it sort of took a back burner for, for a while. But then after a few people trying it and saying it was really nice, I thought, OK, I'll, I'll definitely work that line in the future. And when I came to Spain, that's when I started to finish the line. So it was quite a few years. It was a big gap from start to finish. Yeah, wow. Are there any other lines like that, which you've been working over, you know, many years? Uh, the Jungle Kush, that's something that I've done. So the original cross was SFV, the clone, the Bubba Kush clone, and a Hawaiian. The Hawaiian was added to add like a little bit more vigor to, to, those, to those strains. Um, 
And then from those seeds, I work that line, crossing them together and doing a little bit of selection. And then that's what I release as the actual jungle kush then later on. So the mantis, the mandarina and the jungle uh, kush are the three lines that I've worked really. Everything else is mainly F1 after that. Okay, and was the first release of the Jungle Kush labelled like F2, F3, or did you just call it Jungle Kush? Just Jungle Kush. Yeah, same with the Mandarina. Even though I worked the line in that, it's because it's never sort of released. So the original ones just go between maybe a few friends that are testing it and stuff like that. And then what I actually release will be the worked line, and that is what I release because that's as close to the mother that I most people have tried as well would you consider kind of adding those generations onto future packets just in the fact that these days it seems almost standard that the more generations a line has put into it you know you can almost charge a bit more for each generation because you know you have put work in for each generation or would you still just always want to keep it you know just simply jungle Kush, for example no, I definitely want to put like because uh, I haven't got a catalog or anything like that at the moment. So I'd like to put a catalog together, and maybe in there put a little bit more of the history and the actual breeding work of each strain. I think that would be a good option, just because if nothing else, potentially other breeders, you know, like they're always looking for, you know, potentially more work stocks, more stable, more predictable generally, and also. You know, hopefully you haven't wasted your time working a line that was a dud. So, you know, kind of a good indication if you've bothered to work it. It's probably pretty good. Yeah, no, definitely. And you, you like, the mandarina is so stable for, for that for that smell that it, it has on it. Anything that you cross it with. I and mean, so many people have, uh, I've even seen some small little breeders that are on, like, Instagram and that. They've used a, a male of it. I reversed it, made a few lines for Karma and stuff like that. So, um, and it's it, it's a very dominant trait now because of how it's been bred. So you've mentioned a few UK breeders and, you know, I've mentioned one or two. Why do you think it is that a lot of the UK breeders don't get as much notoriety as some of the US breeders? Do you think it's the fact that just the culture is a bit different or do you think there's not as many breeders per capita type thing in the UK? What do you think the situation is? I think it definitely comes down to location, yeah. And the whole scene, the American scene is totally different to the UK scene. Yeah, yeah the outdoor scene that they have there as well. Yeah, I, I think the selections that they've been able to do even since the 60s and stuff like this in america they have a a good genetic pool of plants there yeah and so did people not really keep seeds from those early import hash because it seems like that's kind of the most valuable stuff going around at the moment no yeah i think like even the old like hippie types that i knew and stuff like that like, they never even kept hash, even though they brought back all sorts of different things from India and places like this. It's because we haven't got that outdoor scene yet. Whereas people, when they came back from their travels back to America, those seeds could be planted straight in the ground and people could grow them out. Yeah, that's interesting. 
And so do you think overall the ability to have an outdoor season in general just really benefits the community, like the scene, so to speak? Yes, yes, definitely, definitely. I even see it here in Spain, um, visiting like older growers and stuff like that. They have some strains that they've kept for years and they're things that I've never like even smelt before. Some of the smells that come from these old sativas and stuff that they've kept are yeah, very impressive. Um, I grew a few out last year and um, yeah, some of the, t- the terps, he had one that was an Afghan cross tie and it smelled like straight up chocolate from DNA Genetics. Like straight up chocolate. So that was quite impressive. Um, but yeah, so definitely the outdoor scene definitely uh, improves those genetics, I think. And so you just touched on it. You're now in Spain. What's the Spanish scene like? You know, you're our first person from the Spanish region who's give, able to give us the rundown, which is obviously, in my opinion, the kind of hot place to be in the EU right now. Would you agree? And what's it like from your perspective? Um, yeah, I think how it's portrayed on the internet and it's, it's totally different to how it is in reality. Um, in Catalonia now, um, some of the clubs are starting to be recognised and they're going down that line of sort of legality. But how they're going to actually regulate it and stuff like that, I, I really don't know. Um, the rest of Spain, no. You, if you, you can't take any, any cannabis on your personal self outside. Um, if you're in your own house doing it, you're, you, you are permitted to do that. Growing it is, is a big grey area, really. So, um, but Barcelona is, is the place where it is changing and going towards the right way, where you have a lot of clubs now. Um, they have the Spanibus every year, which is a really big event. Um, so, yeah, it's going in the right direction. This is a much more relaxed than the UK. How the general public view it here as well is is a lot more relaxed. And so how do you feel about Spanibus? You know, a lot of people in the States uh, have mixed feelings about cups for a variety of reasons. Do you think, like, the Spanibus Cup's pretty good? You know, it's not not really any whispers of corruption or any people who are, you know, no. causing any mishaps? So far... I've I've seen none of that, and it seems to be like the the best flower or the best extract does win. Um, a group of friends of mine, the uh, Boratory Dabulus, which are like an extract company, they entered the sour mandarina extract and they got a second place. So um, there's there's definitely no uh, you, it can't be sort of bought. How they judge it as well is quite fair in the way they do it. Um, I'd like to see the actual the actual voting to, to show that afterwards. That would be interesting. I like how they do that on the IC Mag Cup. I think that's a very sort of uh, transparent cup, a good one. Nice. And so 
how do you interact with all the other breeders in Spain? You know, there's a few notable ones like uh, Charlie Garcia and the guys from Cannabiogen are the first ones to jump to mind. Do you have a lot of interaction with those guys or is it everyone's just kind of doing their own thing at the moment? Yeah, I don't tend to sort of uh, get into the whole scene out here too much. I'm quite far from Barcelona. Um, I'm like out in the sticks in the country. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm not sort of, I don't get involved in that side of things too much out here. Um, when I go to Spanabis, um, I meet up with some of the breeders there and stuff like that. And yeah, uh, it's a good event for that, even though it, they have a cup and stuff. It's more about going, seeing old friends, new people, seeing what people have seen how the the bud has changed over the last few years it's get, just getting better and better and better so i can only see it in the next two three years um it's going to be some amazing stuff available in all of these places and so what's the coolest thing you've ever seen at the cup in terms of bud wise um there's a few places that have some nice stuff um like the, the most like place that I actually like to chill out is like there's a place called um, our backyard. Um, that has a nice vibe about it. Um, they always tend to have some nice stuff in there. Um, one place I haven't checked out yet, but they tend to stock a lot of my things, and that is a, is, is the plug. Um, that's another place. Seems to have a, like a nice vibe about it. Um, but yeah, like I see, I, I also see like a price increase as that I think the bud can be cheaper. I think the prices need to be brought down definitely. But I think that will happen as things go more towards the legal side of things. Okay. And do you think that the development of a scene is largely dependent on the number of people popping seeds? Because I've got this theory that if everyone stops popping seeds, essentially everything will come to a standstill in terms of progression. Do you think that's the case? 100% yes. Because nothing new will be found. Everyone grows the same stuff. Everyone grows the same clone. I see it happen in Holland, where everyone just wants to grow clones, even in the UK. But this, the feminized seed market, I think this is where most people in Europe and the UK want to go down the lines of feminized seeds. Um, but I think in the future, I think even people are going to come away from that who, who are more serious about it and be popping regular seeds and going through more regular seeds, doing their own breeding, doing their own selection. Because I love to see other people's work because everybody selects something totally different. I can give the same packet as seeds to three different people and tell them to do some breeding work. And what they end up with will be three totally different things. Totally. And so we've mentioned a lot of breeders so far. Who are some of the ones who you really look up to or you, you know, you're really fond of the work they do? Um, okay. Um, Bodhi at the moment. I'm very impressed with his work i've always been a like enjoyed talking to him and seeing his stuff online and breed bay used to do a lot of good threads and when he used to do his trips to like south america and stuff like this yeah and uh nepal so yeah i, I admire bodhi definitely he's a he's a, he's a he's a good guy 
would there be anyone you'd want to do a collaboration with? Um, I'd probably like to do uh, a couple more things with Sonic because um, in the past, me and him used to do a lot of work together and that. And I like the lines that he's worked with. So, yeah, maybe some with him. I'd love to do one with Bodie. That would be amazing. Yeah. And so, to kind of be devil's advocate, what strain, you know, if, if the kind of the proposed idea is you're each going to bring one side of the strain to the table, which strain, and you can even choose which, whether it's the male or the female, what would you want to bring to the table? Uh, what, from both those people? Well, no, on your part, if you were, say, to do a cross with Bodhi, don't worry about him for the moment, what would you want to bring to the table on your half? You can pick male or female, but one of your strains... You know, what What would you most kind of want to stand behind or what do you think would work the best with one of his lines? I think the Jungle Kush or the Mandarina, just those two lines, just because of how they breed and how strong they are, bigger, everything. Yeah, Terps, yeah, those two. So I've had this interesting theory for a little bit now, basically that a long time ago... I used to get pretty bad anxiety with certain sativas, generally, you know, like the more stronger ones, pretty typical with what most people would describe. And then as time went by, I kind of didn't really get that anxiety anymore. For a long time, I was thinking to myself, oh, you know, like I've just had like a tolerance build up to sativas in general and I'm now able to have these more racy ones because, you know, like I've worked my way up to it type thing. But then thinking back on it in general, I was like, you know what, like, Back when I was getting anxiety from the sativas, I had anxiety in general. And nowadays, when I can smoke them, I don't actually get anxiety anymore. I haven't in a very long time. And so it makes me think, do you think like a lot of that, even with weed, for example, is down to where you're at personally? Because like a lot of people will say, oh, you know, don't do a DMT trip if, for example, you're really, you're depressed or you're anxious because that type of stuff can be aggravated and come out. Do you think that even applies to weed as well? I think it, like, we'll go to, we'll say, answer the DMT one first and say, like, if you are feeling, like, anxious or depressed and that, I wouldn't say not to take it. I think to do it with the right person, yeah, in the right space is definitely uh, more to do with it than anything else. Obviously, the mindset comes with it, like, the better mindset you're in. But then you're going for an experience, so sometimes it can help with different mindsets. So with cannabis, um, I would say, yeah, like one of my friends, he gets a bit anxious with the sativas and that and, and still does. But as he's got older, he's been able to handle it a little bit better, definitely. Um, I think, does that answer your question, I hope? Yeah, no, for sure. It's interesting. It's one I want to kind of think more about myself, contemplate and see where we get to. So a quick little question I wanted to ask. Where does the name Banana Man come from? Uh, that's a funny one, that. Um, right. At the time, I, I was the only one just growing regular seeds all the time. All my friends were growing feminized seeds. And I was going to their grows and I was just picking up bananas everywhere. So I'm thinking, like, it was a bit of a joke. I'm, like, telling them I'm more of a banana farmer. I keep coming here just picking up bananas all day. So... When I went online, I thought, okay, banana farmer. And then, then I thought, no, actually, banana man. I like the cartoon. So, yeah, and that's how the name came about, really. 
That's awesome. What stuff are you testing out at the moment? Uh, like my, my friend's just done like a big like grow of uh, orange soda. So I'm testing out some of them, and I've just done a new jungle kush times jungle kush again, like a V2 version. So he's given me a load of different phenos of that. I've got a little bit of Gorilla Glue 4, the clone. So he's given me a bit of that try. Some jungle dog phenos, which was a star dog crossed with the jungle kush. Again, they're limited. I only released so many. I think there's like a couple of packets still available at other places, but... I probably won't make that one again. How do you feel about the common hype strains? You mentioned the Gorilla Glue. A lot of people, you know, kind of hate on the hype strains, but at the same time, they love them. Where do you sit? Um, no, I, I like a lot of them. Like, there's the, the GG4, it, it makes some real nice hash, and, yeah, it's, it's a good all-round strain. Like, the ones that have stood the... the test of time like like the OGs and sours and stuff like that they're amazing the newer things like the cookies I do like the cookies I haven't tried like the gelato and a lot of these new ones from like and what else was there the sunset sherbet things like this I'm yet to try them so and do you like to breed with the cookies I mean I know you have yes um, I think it's good for breeding and from breeding with it, I see so many fennos that are so similar to like Bubba when I breed with Bubba as well. Definitely like like those cherry pie type fenos are popping up as well. So it's quite interesting when you breed with it. Whatever the F1 Durban is, <laughs> it'd be quite interesting to find out what that actually is. I don't think anybody actually knows, to be honest. That's my opinion on it. Yeah. Do you think it's the case that no one knows what the F1 Durban is or that maybe it's just something completely different? I think they probably found it in a bag seat of something and they don't actually know what the parents is, just like so many other things that have been found in bag seat and people don't really know what the full parents is, is. Yeah. And so how do you feel about the idea of breeding with S1s? Okay. Um... I've just done a cross with an S1. I'm testing it out now. Uh, it's an S1 from a Fruity Pebble OG cross with OG KB line. So I've just crossed that with my jungle. And I'm going to see how that comes out. But my S1 of my Mandarina, I wasn't happy enough to release them as a feminized line. Um I've grown other S1s out in the past of like some chem strains and stuff like this and not really been impressed uh, compared to the actual clone. So, yeah. And so how do you feel about femlines in general? Is it something we can expect from you in the future? Um, yeah, I'm definitely going to be making more femlines in the future. I've made some mandarina femlines and also some sour diesel femlines last year um, they've come out with some good results um, the jungle juice and the orange soda was made with my jungle kush uh, with the sour diesel reverse and also with the mandarina with the sour diesel reverse to make the orange soda but I did it the other way around as well I reversed the mandarina onto the sour diesel and I also did the jungle kush onto the mandarina and the mandarina onto the jungle kush. 
and I've definitely seen that the dominant plant is the plant that you reverse like all the ones that I reverse with the sour diesel are that like slightly sour diesel stretch and have more sour diesel taste with the mandarina whereas when you reverse the mandarina you get those more short sativa phenos and more mandarina taste coming out so it's been quite interesting and same the other way around with the jungle um I've seen some quite interesting things with like reversing and stuff like, like even reversing like I've had a male that produced pistols this was somebody else's clone and I, I, I got seeds from it so I've flowered it fully out collected the seeds from the male and grew those seeds out and I'm getting 50-50 male and female from them which I didn't expect so that's been quite interesting as well have you finished flowering them out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I got fifty-fifty male and female from the seeds, but this was this was a, that was a couple of years ago. That one happened. And and were the yeah. females stable? Yeah, the the female was like a female from that line. Eh? So would you consider further using those seeds, or they just weren't that good in general? Nah, they just went in the stash. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So. One thing I noticed is that you've used C99 in a few of your strains, and a lot of these strains came out before Brothers Grimm came back. Would you consider re-releasing some of these strains with the new C99, or what's your plans for that? Um, nah, because they're back now, um, I probably won't work with that line anymore. Um, at the time, they weren't around. The Cindy 99 was an amazing plant. That was a, a line worked by a friend of mine, uh, from Breed Bay and he worked the line for many years from the original Brothers Grimm and then I w continued working that line to, to F4 um, and I've just used a female that I've selected from those F4 seeds and pollinated that with the Jungle Kush and that's like I just named it Jungle Jane at the moment but I'm testing them out at the moment to see what they come out like but Cindy Nine is a real special plant, and uh, that that pineapple-y, uh, fruity turp that it has is something special. So, yeah, I'll probably I won't work with that. Like now that he's back, it'd be interesting to see what what they make. So, have you had a chance to try the new one? And has your F4s, you know, has it varied over the generations compared to what the original is essentially? No, everything that you grow from the F4s are just pure Cindy's. They're just all coming out so similar. Um, there's not much variation. And it was already almost like a stable line to work with anyway. So um, it was. I think it's quite easy. It, my, my friend worked the line over years just, just on high. And then I worked it on those pineapple things. So, yeah, it's, it's come out amazing. So where do you rank different attributes in kind of your hierarchy of breeding? So in your mind, is it the case that you don't care if it's big or small yielding, if it's just really good smoke, like that's the goal? Or do you try to have, you know, a bit of a compromise between, you know, like commercial value or where, where do you sit on that? Are you breeding entirely for head stash? What's the go? No, like, I think, like, one of the main things for me is, like, the vigour of the plant, you know, and how well it's 
it can handle like mites is it resistant to, to powdery mildew the, these are some of the main things for me at the moment i think this is what most of the market needs to start looking towards because of how things are going so um yeah definitely that ranks quite high for me and flavor is is the main thing but the high that's that's down to different different lines that i work each line that i work has a different high about it um i think that comes with terps as well though i'm finding that certain terps like the orange things for instance the orangey things are on those lower thc sides the people that extract it get a little bit less return so that comes from like those orangey sort of things um but yeah so it's interesting have you done any work with the whole you know the the, the how should i say newly discovered land of terps in that people are adding you know like food grade terps back to concentrates and stuff now and the overwhelming feedback i've heard is that it's it's not quite the same and it's definitely not as good as if it was like natural terps in there. Do you know much about this and how do you feel about the terps thing? Do you feel it's like the new flavor of the month thing? Um, yeah, I think for the future, I think it's going to hold a lot of benefits uh, in the terps. Um, I think breeding point of view as well, certain terps are definitely stock mites certain terps encourage mites to come to the plant so i think that side of things but the whole thing about adding other plant terps to cannabis extract and all that i I don't agree with that to be honest um i think terps are quite a volatile sort of solvent anyway to um be smoking a lot of um but yeah i think it's going to be interesting what all this testing and stuff like that brings to the table and so do you feel like the same testing requirements that exist in the States should be, you know, in Spain as well? Yes. Um, but, like, the whole how it's going legal in the States and what they're going to implement and stuff like that, I don't know if I agree with all of it totally. And it just opens up the market for big companies, basically, like you've got Scott's Miracle Grow that's bought out Gavita and general hydroponics and all these these other companies and they're not good companies and these are the people that will end up um taking control like monsanto and bayer have taken control of other parts of the fruit and vegetable market and seed market as well um and then you mix plant poisons into that and yeah it's not it's not good how i think it's going to go in the future I think it's going to be very controlled. So, what's the concentrate scene like in general in the UK? You know, in the states, it's seems like it's completely overtaken the flower scene for the you know the general consumer. Do you feel like that's the progression that's happening for the EU in general, or maybe in the UK but not Spain, or maybe vice versa? What do you think it's ha- what do you think is happening? Sorry. Yeah, um, I think like. The extract scene is becoming more popular. It seems to be a a younger generation thing as well, with the whole dabbing and stuff like this. Um, I'm getting into it a little bit. Um, But, like, yeah, I think in in the future, I think smoking will be looked at as, like, an old-school way of doing it. Um, 
But the scene here in Spain, yeah, dabbing is very popular. It's getting more and more popular. Barcelona, yeah, there's a big scene for it. There's lots and lots of extract artists now over in Spain and the UK. Um, and they're bringing some beautiful tasting stuff to the table. So, yeah, and competing with some of the Americans even. So, yeah, it's interesting to see what's what it'll bring. So would you ever consider breeding specifically for terps or for concentrates, so to speak? Yeah, well, I've sort of done that anyway by by breeding for uh, tricone production and terps in general, um, like the Jungle Kush and the Jungle Juice. They produce some crazy returns. Um, so, yeah. People, people are loving that. It's like an extract artist dream. Those two plants. Um, so, yeah, I think that comes hand in hand with breeding good flower. You breed good extract strains because um, if you're breeding for flavour, I think that's one of the main things. Tricon production. Obviously, you select for for the plants with big, big tricon production that can produce lots of terpenes the terpenes that you choose that you like. So, yeah. Okay. And so a question I was thinking about is how often do you think it's the case that someone grows out a pack of maybe yours, maybe anyone's seeds, and they think to themselves, oh, this fina is not so good. And then, like, maybe they ditch it. But the truth is maybe they just didn't grow out that well because recently I've grown a few things again that I initially thought were bunk, but they're from people I really respect. So I was like, you know what, I'll give it another go. Lo and behold, completely different, way better, totally worth keeping. Do you think that's like something which happens a lot? Because you mentioned earlier, you're like, yeah, there's you know, there's winners in every packet. Do you think maybe there's a bit of that going on for people who maybe disagree with that? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I think that just comes down to selection. Like when I first started breeding, I seen this more with the plants. Like the plants that I was selecting and using. I would see this variation where you were getting some really nice plants and some plants not so nice. But as you know, that's progressed, I don't see that so much yeah, in my lines. Um, and even lines from other people. <clears throat> I've grown Bodhi's things this year. I've grown some stuff from Canarado. I've grown some stuff from South Fork Seeds. You know, their stuff does really well outdoors. Um, and all amazing work from each one of them. So, yeah. So the interesting thing I just took away from that is all of those are U.S. breeders, as well as many of the other breeders you've mentioned so far. What do you think is the go with there not being that many breeders in the EU scene, despite there being a really big market? Do you think that more people from, you know... UK, for example, need to, you know, pick up their game and start releasing things? Or why do you think it is, you know, there aren't that many EU breeders? Um, I think there's lots of them. Um, I think there's a good one. There's a lot of shit. Yeah, there's a lot of shit companies out there, like just producing. I I, I don't even know what they're producing. I see some. So, like. Yeah, like there's there's so many of these little Spanish companies and Dutch companies popping up all the time, and 
a lot of Spanish people grow these seeds. They like cheap, feminized seeds. And when you see the results, everything's just substandard uh, weed. It's just, yeah, it's, it's a shame to see because if they were actually growing uh, plants that were actually starting from good seeds, they could produce some amazing flower out here. So this is where it comes down to genetics again, yeah? And these 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 shit seed companies that use uh, not very good genetics that are just making feminized seeds because that particular plant produces a lot of pollen, yeah? And it's good for making feminized seeds. It's just polluting the, the market with um, substandard uh, genetics. So this is something you may or may not have an opinion on. How do you feel about the way strain hunters notably, you know, kind of went to other countries and just diluted or polluted, I should say, the genetic gene pools, uh, you know, with their stock in exchange for land races? Because it's almost kind of like what you're describing in a way, like just coming and giving inferior stuff to the locals and they just don't know. Yeah, I think it, that whole thing was crazy when I seen that. Um, well, elite, he, he's got a nice genetic library now of all the nice land races, and he's polluted it for anybody else to go back to. But these people, like you tell these people that uh, you can get twice as many, uh, twice as much yield, and you don't have to pick up males, and these people are going to go with that. This is how... Uh, Monsanto has taken over parts of Africa with certain uh, things that they've produced so it's just the same thing as that really, like going round to these places and polluting uh, and it's not even like he's given a few seeds to one little farmer and say keep that little patch or something like that he's literally gone there with kilos of seeds and taken kilos of their seeds, it's all crazy to be honest yeah, the the immediate thing I thought of, it's almost like a crude way of like copywriting it, you know? Because as you said, it's like you've got your library, no one else does. Yeah, that's what he'll be doing in the future. Um, I think, unless this, yeah, he, he's he's looking to the future where he can patent certain strains or stuff like that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what Aryan's game plan is now that the main workhorse there is no longer there. Yeah, Franco was a good guy. Yeah. He had a true passion for the planet. Yeah, shame he's gone. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Franco, in my opinion, did all the work, and it was so pretentious the way Arian named everything after himself when he almost openly admitted he didn't do any of the work. Yeah, it's a shame to see. Oh, well. Hopefully some good new Dutch companies can take their place. An interesting idea I wanted to ask you about, though, is do you think that people who are aspiring breeders throughout the EU should move to Spain, for example, to help get things going? I guess the underlying idea is, is it better to try to have one more person, you know, like doing the right thing, being a good breeder, but in Spain, or to stay in the illegal country, kind of, you know, fight the hard fight, but not be able to reach your full potential and, you know, offer what you could maybe? Yeah, I think even in Spain it's hard. Like I can't achieve my full potential out here. This is why I'm looking towards maybe working with somebody in America to sort of get 
a lot more of my genetic lines over there, maybe work some of the lines on a, on a bigger scale, larger selections, because um, that can't be done here. It's, it's still a, a very big grey area. I think anyone who's thinking about coming to Spain should definitely look at all the laws, come out here first, speak to people that are already living here, um, and judge it for themselves. Yeah. So do you think it's possible for the average person to make a living? Like, let's, let's, let's be actually really optimistic about it. Let's say you live in America and, so, and you're a really good grower. Like, you've got validation of it. Like, you know, dispensaries will pay top dollar for your type stuff and it's, and it's really good. So you're thinking to yourself, yeah, if I move to Spain, I could definitely grow stuff. It's real good, sell it to dispensaries, you know, yada, yada, yada. Do you think that that's actually possible or do you think like, no, like, you, you know, you're not going to get enough money for it. You need to have other stuff going on. Like, how do you see it? Um, because I'm not really in that scene in Barcelona. I don't know how that would work there. I don't know how it really works there. Um, but with it going sort of uh, more legal and they're going to sort of regulate the grow rooms and that, Maybe yeah, I think maybe maybe they might even go towards that way, yeah. So another thing that's going to be interesting to see over the next year or so. Yeah, wow, interesting. If we were going to talk about some of the traits that you look at in males and think that that indicates a superior male, what are the some of the things you like on males that you think indicate you know this is going to be my breeding male? Okay, uh, resistance, you know, how, how well it copes with things, number one. Um, the growth, um, I like to tend to go for like a, like a slightly sh- shorter type male because when they do go into flower, they tend to stretch out a lot more. Um, shorter internodes between the spacing. Um, the smell of the stem was something that I always used to go by yeah? and when it dropped pollen as well, not those males that drop too early. Um, And obviously uh, resin, like the the males that you can get resin from and smell them, uh, they are the the special males. And do you find that that flavour or that smell correlates? Yes, yeah. I'd like to actually start reversing some of my males and turning them female to actually see uh, how they end up. That's something that I'd like to, I haven't done that I'd like to start doing. Just as a bit of a random side question, would you ever consider doing a pollen release? Yes, yeah. Do you know what, I've actually uh, um, got some pots here at the moment, and I was thinking of doing a little giveaway of just uh, free... Uh, three packs of seeds and one little tube of pollen to someone. Someone that's already grown out my strains as a little giveaway. So, yeah, I'd definitely look towards doing something like that in the future. Yeah. And what would be some of the strains you'd want to do for the pollen release? Because obviously, as a breeder, you could do it strategically because you can think, all right, what is something I would want to get out there because... You know, best case scenario, someone breeds with it, makes something amazing, and you know, whenever something amazing is around, people always look at the parents and think, "Hmm, you know, I'd like to try that type of thing." Yeah, I, it would be the mandarina, 
and uh, the Mantis. Uh, because of the two sort of terps that it does pass over, it's quite a dominant. Both of them are quite dominant. Uh, Mantis passes over this lime zest, and the Mandarina passes over that, that orangey citrus terp. So they would be the two pollens that I would actually uh, probably look towards giving out. Okay. And so if we just jump back to what we were talking about before with the breeding, an idea commonly brought up, and I think notably I've heard this from Subcool, is he says that he believes the males particularly bring the flavour. Do you find that is an accurate rule of thumb, or it really just varies? The male brings flavour, let me think. Um, yeah, so I guess if you wanted me to like elaborate a little bit more, you know, your selection of the male, that's what brings the flavour. So, for example, you could have a female and she's really nice, got really good flavour, but if the male you pick, if, if what his profile is is not good, you know, that's going to dominate more so. So do you feel like the male you're yes. using crosses dominates them? Yeah, yeah, I think that plays a big role. If you're if you're selecting a male, um, <clears throat> the outcome from that cross can be varied, and this is where you get some plants that are amazing and other plants that you just look at and think, oh, I just wouldn't even smoke that. So, yeah, uh, I think that plays a big role. Eh? So what about this idea I've been thinking about, right? Is the best female for breeding a dominant one in that? A lot of people, I feel, buy seeds more so for the mother than the father because there's a lot of people out there, notably, say, Subcool, um, who a lot of the strains use the same father again and again. And so it's like the people buying these seeds are obviously interested in the mother, what it brings to the table. So with that being said, is the best mother not one that's very dominant so that people can ideally find a good replica of it in the 10-pack? Yeah, like even males that are non-dominant. So when you cross a male, everything that comes is more like the mother. I find some males are like this, like a non-dominant male. So doesn't matter what you cross that male to, so many of the phenos are coming out like the mother that you cross it to. So I think that plays a big role as well, and that comes down to selection again, yeah. Okay, and so... How do you find you select that? Do you just have to do it the old-fashioned way and, you know, make some seeds grow them out? Test and test, yeah. Yeah, time, time-consuming. So you use multiple males on the same female, uh, all at different, uh, on different females, though, so you don't mix the pollen, and then test those seeds out and see which males pass over what traits. Yeah, yeah. only way it can be done. So how many seeds do you like to pop when you're popping one of your strains to get a bit of an idea of, you know, if it's a good line, if it's worth releasing? Okay. Um, I'll pop a couple of packets myself and I'll give out a few packets to friends that will grow straight away and then give out a few to maybe a few selected people from online or something like this and then see the results from that. Uh, that's how I tend to do it now. Um, just with this new one, I've done so many new crosses with the Jungle Kush that I've just started so many seeds outside and they've vegged up for a few weeks and they've gone into flowers. So they're all very short, but I'll get a good idea of which ones I want to continue working with or test more. So, um, yeah, like from each strain, I, you, I want to be seeing like 
from 50. I can get a bit of a percentage from 50 females. And would you ever consider providing a little bit more kind of detailed information on number of phenotypes, what you could expect from each phenotype, that type of thing? Because we have seen more breeders switch over to providing, you know, these more kind of thorough analysis, particularly on F1s where it's, you know, there is a bit more variation. Yeah, if you go on Breedbay, we used to have to fill out a form and then you can see it all there and it says how many phenos of each type and everything. So I used to do this a lot more, but I see that so many people are just like not even interested. They just want to know what the mother is and what the father is and what it's crossed with. And it's all about the name, it seems, nowadays. But I always tend to jot all these things down. I've got notebooks and everything, so... Maybe I'll put that in the catalogue as well. But if you go on Breed Bay, a lot of my older strains and the Mantis and stuff like that, you can actually see, and it says there, you know, the parents, how many phenos of each type and explains everything, yeah. So something I've noticed over the past kind of year or so that I've been doing the show is I've been keeping tight tracks on which seed babies are stocking who and things like that for various reasons. And something I've noticed is your seeds have been increasingly getting to more seed banks, getting out there more and more. Have you found that's been like an easy thing or it's been a bit of an uphill battle? And what should people expect if they're looking to get their seeds out there into the market? Mm. Yeah, it's hard, hard to sort of maybe crack America a little bit more. But I think I've had quite a few people buying from America and Canada since I sort of started on Breed Bay. So we had a lot of American people on there and at the time Subcore was on there, um, Bodhi was on there, uh, Gooey Breeder, Sun Simulator, quite a few people. So like there was, it was a, a good little uh, community. So a lot of people came there, bought seeds, so I've had quite a uh, American-based market for a while, but it all comes with time, and I think now that it's all about seems about all about cups and what you've crossed it with, that seems to be the how you sell seeds now more than how much work's actually gone behind it. I think that's more for the the connoisseur type grower. And so, like, with that being said, do you not feel like it's really important for you to try to win as many cups as possible, assuming they are based on merit? Because, you know, it is going to have a flow-on effect to sales? Um, yeah. Um, I'd like to enter the IC Mag Cup again, just because of how transparent it is and you, you get to see everything. Um, I wasn't really into cups in the past, um, but recently I've entered a few and we've got a few cups, so that's, that's been that's been good. But yeah, I think it's always good to um, enter one every now and again. Yeah, but maybe in the future I'll probably stay away from most of them, just stick with the IC mag ones or maybe any new ones that pop up which are a little bit more transparent. Yeah. So overall, what would be your advice to, you know, a new aspiring breeder? What's what's the best way for them to get into the market? Should they look to develop a library first? What should they do before they try to start getting their work out there to the masses? 
grow as many different genetics as you can, create a library, um, selection, do your selection, make your seeds, pass them to people, give out so many seeds for free, I've given out so many seeds for free, just give out your seeds, and um, I think the seeds will speak for themselves, yeah, and um, yeah, I think that's the best advice really, yeah. So at what point did you make the jump from just, you know, like making some seeds for yourself to thinking, you know what, I'm going to sell this? Yeah, um, I was making a few um, different strains, uh, making a few different crosses and stuff like that. And people were showing interest, like asking, well, when are you going to put them on breed bay? So I sent out a lot and people were putting up pictures of them, growing them. This was around 2007, 2008, and then that's when I sort of created Tricum Jungle Seeds. And, um, yeah, uh, it went from there, really. But it's only more recently that I've had a, a bit more of a influx of uh, interest and in sales and stuff like that is from the whole American market, I would say, yeah, of how it's going over there. Okay, interesting. And so what do you think is going to be the next big thing to hit the American market? And are you already working on something for that to cater to it? Um, yeah, I'm working on a few things at the moment, and mainly the Jungle Kush crosses. So I've crossed so many different things with Jungle Kush. I think the main ones are going to be like the, the, the Tahoe TK uh, crossed with the Jungle Kush, the SFV TK with the Jungle Kush, um, the Girl Scout cookie crossed with a cherry pie crossed with a jungle kush so those three um, are in testing at the moment which I think are going to be like yeah well the parents I've selected are amazing so we'll, we'll see how all the testing goes so they're going to be the main ones that I'm going to be releasing soon um, I released two recently which were the, the Hadouken which is the Sunset Sherbet crossed with the Cookie Crisp from Canarado. And I crossed that with the Jungle Kush and the Jungle Rose, uh, which is a cross of from Motive 303 of uh, Fruity Pebble OG with U-Dub. And I found this uh, like Fenno that has this like rose water turp. So that's the one that I selected and crossed with the Jungle Kush as well. So, yeah, and everything's coming out amazing. So we've just finished testing that and just done a release on both of them. Crystal Ship is a strain that caught my eye because it uses Kodiak Gold, which is not a well-known strain from Reefer Man. Um, How do you feel about it? You know, would you consider using it again or is it one of those ones that's kind of long gone? Um, yeah, I used it at the time and it was a, a nice selection. But now from the gene pool I've got, it it's not a standout plant. Um, plus, I probably I wouldn't want to work with a reef man stuff anyway. Um, do yeah. go on. <laughs> do go on. Um, I don't like some of his uh, views he's had in the past. I know people change and that, but yeah, I, I, I'll probably stay away from his genetics from now on. 
Yeah, no worries. And so if we then jump a generation forward, Galactic Smurf, you know, you use Crystal Ship, you crossed it to Unknown Strain Pony Boy. I always love Unknown Strains. Tell us about this one. What was the go with him? Okay, Pony Boy. Um, these seeds came to me at a High Times Cup one year uh, from Coyote Seeds. Yeah, it was some like mad American guy. Um, and he had like this picture of all like little Smurfs everywhere, and like he'd put them all in his bird and some seeds, and he had all these different crosses with the Smurfs and stuff like that. And that's where I got those seeds from. But I can't find any information about this guy at all. I don't know if you've ever heard of Coyote Seeds. No. <laughs> okay, so that's that's where it came from. Yeah. Okie dokie. So. We mentioned the Jungle Kush a few times. Do you think that this is kind of going to be your masterpiece, so to speak? Or do you envision, envision there ever being a masterpiece? Or do you think you'll just continue on with strains and just keep working things until you find a new thing to work on? Um, yeah, like every year I'm finding just new things. And like it's unbelievable how how many different um smells that this plant can produce like yeah so every, every couple of years i'm i'm finding something that stands out that i'm like i've never smelled anything like this before so i don't think i think creating con we're always creating we're always learning throughout life so yeah i think that's how i'll take my breeding yeah um constantly learning from this plant and constantly creating new things all the time but the jungle kush at the moment amongst everybody that's uh, growing it and extracting from it is one of the standout strains alongside the jungle juice um i think the jungle juice will probably become almost an elite like because there's not many seeds of that left now in circulation so it'd be interesting I haven't got the sour diesel. Um, uh, uh, it's like a res dog sour diesel, but Karma selected it. So I reversed that to make that. And also the orange soda, so I haven't got that anymore. So um, we'll see how I work that line further in the future, maybe. We'll see. So it's interesting you mentioned Karma. I had a question. You know, you've used some of Karma's strains in a whole bunch of different strains of your own. Is there any other breeders out there besides the ones already mentioned, you know, Canarado got a bunch of big ups. Is there any other breeders who you would consider using their work? See, uh, Karma stuff, I like his OG lines, his, his Kush, uh, Biker Kush. Um, that was a real nice plant. Uh, I even liked his Headbanger. That was a good one. Um me and him don't work too much together anymore. He used my mandarina on a few crosses. Uh, I made a few mandarina crosses for him. Um, see, working with other breeders in the future. Um, maybe some collabs or something like that. Maybe some limited things. That would be quite interesting with some people. Yeah, we'll see how things go. Oh, okay, so just to clarify things went sour because he made the mandarina cushions or you made them for him um do you know what that was uh that was 
Yeah, somebody else actually made them, right? I, I gave someone a, a mandarina clone, um, and they just pollinated uh, a plant. So he ended up with some seeds from some some guy that he was using to make some seeds for him. So that's where they came from. And then he's used the same name, put the same name on it, and released them as freebies now. Yeah, that, that it's probably down to the things going sour between me and him. Um, but yeah, some it, it happens a lot in this game. Um, I see a lot of breeders they they fall out over certain things. Um, but yeah, it's uh, how things go sometimes. And so, how do you feel about the idea of asking for permission to use someone's work? You know, is it like mandatory or just respectful? No, I think it's respectful to ask someone. It depends. It depends, like what your intentions are with the seeds. If you're going to be making a lot of money from it and that, then yeah, I think the people need to be asked. Um, if you're going to be doing like a, li- a limited drop or giving them out for freebies or something like this, um, I don't see it as too much of a big problem. Um, people are welcome to use anything from any of my seeds. Uh, I say always, yeah, select a male, select a female, make things, cross things. It's how we all start, so, um, yeah, I don't have a problem with it myself. Uh, A few people have used my things and not asked. Um, It doesn't really bother me, to be honest. And so if we jump back to that uh, African land race idea for a while, will we be seeing any African crosses in the future? Notably, I see you have the Caribbean crush, you know. Guess not Africa most people are thinking of, but... Nevertheless, an African strain. Yeah, well, that was a, a St. Lucian. Um, me and Sonic went to St. Lucia. Uh, I'm trying to think when it was. Probably about 2009 or something like this. And we went to a field there. We uh, the, the variation was unbelievable. You had like 12-foot sativas and you had like tiny little two-foot plants next to it so like because of the season there um so we went round we collected some flowers of the things that taste smelt the nicest took them back dried them tasted them selected some seeds from them um a lot of them hermed when grown indoors though <clears throat> yeah a lot of them uh, hermed when grown indoors and delights um but then out in spain i found a nice one and I pollinated that with the man, uh, with the uh, I had the mantis and I had the Saint Lucian, and I pollinated them both with the headbanger. So I made like the sour mantis and the Caribbean crush at the same time. So, but that was a real nice strain as well. Like it had that almost tropical, but uh, zesty turp going on with it. But, yeah, it was a nice one we selected from that field. An idea I've had for a little bit now is, do you think that the most memorable crosses are ones that produce really unexpected but awesome flavors? Like, for example, if you crossed a chocolate strain with a strawberry strain and you're thinking, oh, I'll get, like, you know, chocolate stories or whatever, and then it comes out and it's, like, rotten meat. And, like, maybe it's, like, phenomenal, you know, like, something like that where it's just, like, you know, totally doesn't really add up. Do you feel like those are often the most memorable ones or sometimes the predictable ones are the best as well? 
Yeah, no, I think the ones that really like for me when I grow things and someone says it's a cross of this and this, and then I grow it and it's it produces a smell that's nothing like any of the parents and really unique and unusual. That for me is something special. Um, and I've come across that couple of times this year with a few things um, and they've become part of the library so people will see a lot more from those things and a little history on each one soon in the future so yeah and so just as a bit of a random question how important do you rate aesthetics within your whole breeding operation do you value it highly would you ever knock a strain back from market if you thought oh it doesn't really look good but it was like really good smoke um no probably not and but like i'd sort of uh explain it a little bit like you get some like varied phenos and some are small yielding and some are large yielding or maybe like you get some like with like even i'd consider some cookie crosses like they they have these like almost freaky um stunted almost phenos where the buds don't want to grow too big and stuff like this so yeah i'd explain all that and so just as another bit of a random question if you were going to enter a cup would you want to enter something which you thought was just really well grown or like would you also want to have like a bit of that real wild card factor of like throwing some real unique flavor or terpene profile out there what would be your kind of aim um most of the time i'd like to enter a strain that i've got in seed form and a pheno that represents the strain that he so uh if it does win people can have the seeds and a good representation of what I've actually won. I think that's a, a good thing to go for. And so do you have any kind of old school genetics or any kind of wild cards that you're looking to breed with in the near future or, you know, pop in the near future, potentially work with? Um, definitely a few of the land race collection is definitely going to be coming out. I have some... Hunza, Pakistani strains, uh, Uzbeki, uh, some African strains again, yeah. So that's, I'm interested in popping some of them because I haven't grown any of that for a long time. Um, what else? Uh, yeah, I think more of the land race because I've, I've been starting a lot of seeds from other breeders, uh, a lot of my own stuff. Um I think it's time to do a little uh, land race selection and see what comes about. How would you want to work that? Let's just say you did pop it and you got some good numbers of, let's just say just one. Would you want to cross it with a certain strain or would you want to breed it a few generations? Yeah, I've got already got like Brazilian and uh, Thai. So I'd probably look for something in the Uzbeki strains or the Citral strain or even the Hunza and find something a little bit more on the Indica side and cross that with the uh, the um, Mexican tie. And so what type of like, you know, let's say you do have this crazy hybrid, what type of work would you want to do with it then? Would you want to 
keep working it to the point where it's stable or be offering something that like you know it's a bit more wild kind of like what Bodie's doing now what's kind of the end goal for this the land races um it'd be nice to create something totally from scratch uh from the well the originals um and then uh work that line yeah uh even work it outside would be nice each year maybe do a little patch so yeah that'd be quite interesting and let's just say worst case scenario you got the seeds to pop but they were all showing herm traits would you try to line breed it and weed them out or would that type of thing just indicate too much effort for you yeah i'll try and work away from that and especially outdoors i'd expect not to see it as much with uh, a lot of these strains i know it's they're prone to it and it's natural, but uh, I try and work away from that. Yeah. You can breed it out. How many generations would you expect it might take? Because, I mean, something I noticed is in the earliest SSC magazines, for example, they would often say bred for four generations, shows some hermaphroditic traits still. And so that was some, you know, the best stock there was. So uh, to me, it, it makes me think, well, obviously, it's not worth just throwing in the towel immediately, but might take a few generations and to me four sounded like they maybe got lucky like i would almost expect it to have taken more to really taken a good step away from those traits especially because they're recessive if like they're all herming on the first generation right yeah i'm gonna say you could do it in four or five generations i reckon interesting depending on what you're starting with yeah 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 and so I guess if we jump back to strain hunters for a moment, do you think there is there is any real pure land races left or they've just all been diluted in one form or another? Mm, I think a lot of places have been diluted for a long time. Um, other small islands and maybe hard to get to places have still got things. And even if it's only one or two packets that have been brought to these places and then introduced, natural selection, again, will get rid of them, yeah? And it will revert back to their sort of almost natural sort of stuff anyway. So um, I think there are still some places out there with some uh, land race strains. What places would you like to go and search for some land races? I think maybe some uh, Indian genetics would be nice to add. Yeah, I think India would be maybe a nice place to go and collect some uh, seeds. Is that just because you're into hash? Um, yeah, I think the whole hash thing, um, the culture, yeah, it'd be interesting to see it all and uh, collect some seeds from there. Next on the list after that would probably be uh, South America, um, just to see some of the stuff there. Um, yeah. Okay. How do you feel about strains that throw nanas at like the end of the cycle? You know, the ones that do it rather predictably. Do you feel like that's a negative trait or it's just kind of like something you deal with? Yeah, I don't see it as a problem. Um, I find that sometimes I see it from the Agent Orange before 
but they were always unfertile um, and never ever made seeds. You could even pick them out and try and make a seed from them and they just wouldn't pollinate. So, um, And it's almost like a natural defence. If you've pushed a plant out and you get a few nanas at the top and that, I, I, I don't see it as a, as a huge problem. Yeah. Another one I wanted to run by you is I myself have seen a bunch of plants be revegged before. And when I say reveg, I mean they've been taken more or less full flower and just trying to reveg from that point. Do you feel like when you do that, often it's kind of detrimental to the plant in that the plant's maybe not quite the same as when it was first flowered out? Do you like do you tend to lose any traits from revegging or do you find that's not the case? Um, I think that depends on the genetics. Um, I've seen like things where uh, me or a friend has vegged stuff out, uh, revegged, and um, taken clones again, grown those plants out, and they've been identical. So um, I think genetic drift in general can happen down to genetics and the health of the plant in general. So if you can reveg that plant and get it healthy, nice clones coming off of it, then I think uh, you'll get good results back again. So do you agree with the idea expressed by many of our guests in that a poor clone room in terms of the quality results in a degradation of quality over time? Yeah, if you're taking clones off poor mothers then I've seen it with the cheese clone in the UK and people taking clones off it, clones off it. And when they start taking clones off poor mothers, I start seeing um, the outcome, like the plants don't bubble up like they normally do. They don't fill out like they normally do. Maybe the buds are a little bit smaller. Um, Even down to like taste and smell can be lacking. So it can happen over time. So keeping your mother's uh, healthy um, is key, definitely. And so you mentioned earlier that you're organics and you're really into that now. What type of growing um, style do you use specifically? You know, what are you feeding your plants? What are you feeding your mothers to keep them healthy? What are you giving them in all regards? Okay. Um, before, I was doing it mainly with a uh, cocoa. Um, and bottled nutrients um but uh now i'm back to organics i'm using a lot of like uh slow release um powdered organic sort of uh amendments um making like some ferments uh aloe vera i use that a lot and coconut water um bean ferments uh, what else? If I can get nettles, that depends on time of year. Um, make some nettle tea, comfrey tea, stuff like this. Um, but yeah, um, going along those along those uh, lines now. Um, outdoors, I've always done it organic, and always indoors, I've always done organic until I come out to Spain. Really, so it's only been the last couple of years I did the cocoa. Um, but also a good way to test test plants, yeah. 
just quickly touch on the outdoors. Are you enjoying the outdoors more? I mean, given you're into your hash, I imagine you would. That's something I've always seemed to notice. People say that the outdoor hash is unbeatable because even though, you know, maybe the bud doesn't look quite as good as indoor because, you know, there's a bit of dirt, a bit of wind and all that, the, you know, the trichome heads are still perfect and, you know, the sun spectrum is number one. So how do you feel about it or where does outdoor sit for you? Yeah, I think the sun... Uh, light depth weed is uh, by far the best that you can get. The sun produces like terpenes that you just don't get when you do it indoors. I think indoors, organic, you can achieve similar outcomes, but still n- not like like the sun. Um, I think. Um, chemical fertilizers or like mineral salts or whatever um, they can produce like maybe a little bit stronger weed but the terps um, outdoor under the sun uh, is the way forward Um, I've been getting into a couple of books from uh, Jeff Lowenfels and uh, what's the other guy called something Lewis Um, but they're like the teaming with microbes, uh, teaming with fungi, teaming with nutrients, and uh, they've been uh, really good books. Um, putting into practice a lot of knowledge I've gained over the years through like sort of growing like a permaculture type garden, vegetables in that sort of style, a lot of companion planting anyway. So it's good to put all this into practice now with cannabis outside. Um, and the garden outdoors this year is just looking amazing. Yeah, so that's something you mentioned to me earlier, that you do grow a lot of food and stuff, and I think you even said you keep some bees, you know. How does all that play into things? Do you think that people do grow organically, should try to make an effort to grow their own food and things like that, seeing as they've got the skills and often a lot of the uh, the inputs as well? Um, yeah, like bees, I used to keep bees when I was living in the UK. Um, now that I've moved to Spain, I, I've, I've, I've stopped keeping bees. Um, but growing food, I think everybody should grow their own food um, or try it. Like, what it comes down to is where you live and land. A lot of people don't have the land. A lot of people don't have the time to do it. Um, but if, if you have the time and you've got the land there, definitely grow, grow some food. Yeah, um, You've got the skills, so put it, put it, put it into practice, yeah? Um, a lot of people grow organic, but then they don't eat organic food. So, you know, going along those lines as well, when you're growing your own food, uh, you know everything that's gone into it. Do you feel like you do have, like, a better view on the whole plant now that you do do it organically? Like, I guess what I'm trying to say is a lot of people say to me when they grow organically, they feel kind of more in tune with their plants. Not in necessarily, like this weird hokey pokey spiritual way but in a sense of like you know they really understand the cycle they understand how it's all working whereas the stuff in bottles can still be a bit smoke and mirrors at times do you feel like you have that better link with your plants in either way whether it be spiritual or just like you know a more fundamental understanding of the cogs and wheels yeah like organically it it teaches you everything about how that soil works how that plant works um and when you're actually making all these things yourself, 
this is what so many people are missing out on, on, on is the actual understanding of what they're feeding their plants. So many people grow and don't even know what MPK is. And it's just like, yeah, you, you need to be understanding all of this stuff. And organic really teaches you that. And yeah, being around your plants all the time, making these things, feeding it to them. That's, that's another connection with, with nature and that whole cycle. I think it was Jeremy from Builder Soil who said, there's a certain romance about the end quality product of organics. Do you feel the same? Um, yeah, definitely. Definitely. It has something special about it. When it's organic, sun-grown, it, it, it's at its most natural way of how it should be. Um, you're getting everything, yeah, it, it, it's just the perfect way, basically. So you mentioned earlier that you do a lot of your own ferments and things like that now. Do you get much into the whole KNF type of thing, or are you just kind of starting to dip your water, dip your toes, sorry, into the whole water of all the various ferments and how all that interacts with it all? Yeah, I'm just like this is what I'm looking into more because before I came out to Spain, when I was doing organics before, a lot of it was a lot of bottled feeds. Yeah, I'd like use some slow release powdered amendments and stuff like that but this way of doing it is is is, is like I, I, well i used to do nettle teas for the garden and comfrey teas and stuff like that but then this whole uh uh fermenting and stuff like that this is all new definitely so i'm looking into all this now and what's some of the uh the newest products or ideas you're looking to delve into or implement in your own garden I think. um yeah like you were saying then build the soil and stuff like that i've been looking into a few of these other companies that do these uh, amendments and definitely trying to use a few uh broader variety of things in in my feeds and uh soil mixes uh and even composting uh, I'm starting to do a lot more composting and I used to have a worm farm and stuff like that like in the UK some, quite a few bins of worms and I think I need to get more into that so yeah definitely look towards that Does the Spanish scene have you know like a builder soil equivalent is there a place where you can get all of the amendments you're after or is it still a bit of a struggle no, there's nothing like that. This is what I've sort of... It definitely needs... Uh, it's lacking on that side. But as progression happens, more of these stores will start to get these products. I'd like to see a store that only stocks organic products. I've not seen that so far. I think that would be a, a really good thing to do out here in Spain. Yeah, because all of these products are so hard to get. And... It's quite a big agricultural industry over here, um, but they like to spray a lot of chemicals and uh, chemical fertilizers on everything. So, yeah. I love it how your voice just like trailed off. <laughs> <laughs> so how would you describe the scene in general in Spain? Is it mostly people growing organic outdoors given there's the availability or is it pretty well infiltrated by that commercial scene as you referenced with the synthetics no like 
any of the commercial um, standard of Spanish uh, cannabis is is quite low, really. I don't know how they're growing it, but everything has a certain smell or taste to it when I see it. So I'm not too sure what some of these people do use. Um, but, yeah, not organic. But then everybody that grows for themselves on a personal level tends to go down the organic line, um, which is good. Bit of a weird political question. What would you rather do? Would you rather live in a situation where it's illegal but you're growing your own or it's legal but the only people supplying it are like, you know, big corporations and there's a lot of question marks over the quality and, you know, kind of safety checks in the whole process? If it has to be legalized to be normalized and not be felt like a criminal, then that's the line we have to go down. But decriminalizing it is the way forward. Um, but then, yeah, I just, it's, it's, a, it's a hard question that. But yeah, I think it needs to go legal and uh, be... Um, I don't think it should be put in the government's hands, though. I think there's enough people out there that can... There's ways of regulating it in ways. Yeah, but it's not how it will go. Well, I mean, just touching on the idea of regulation, you referenced earlier that you think the price of weed should go down. Let's just move that idea over to seeds, though. We're seeing a general increase in the price of seeds as time goes by. Some say it's in accordance with inflation. Others say it's getting out of hand in some in some respects. How do you feel about that? And you know, do you think there should be some regulation on the price of seeds ultimately? Um, the seeds are worth what what people can sell them for. Yeah, um, my seeds, I think, in general, are quite cheap. Um, I think I could even maybe lower the price a little bit. Um, depending on how much work was involved in each strain. Um, some feminized strains don't produce many seeds so you have to charge a bit more um, but then uh, it, I think it's gone crazy with like when people are charging 300, 400, 500 dollars a packet but then it, it's the market that people pay this um, and then people think if something's 500 dollars and something's $50, the 500 one's got to be better. So people buy by price. I think so many people, we do it in the shops, we do it with food, we do it with clothes, and so people do it with seeds. And so do you think that there are, or should I say, do you think that there is a max price which no one should go over? Or do you think it's just really like, you know, if you want it and you're willing to pay, go for it? Mm. I'd pay uh, a high amount for a special packet um, of something old, maybe. So let's play that wasn't advocate. about anymore. Well, yeah, if I play devil's advocate, do you remember uh, Starfighter? You know, that, that there was some auctions for a while and, and that got, you know, very expensive very quickly. Um, 
you know, do you think that was out of hand or like that's the type of thing which merits what you're talking about? Um, yeah, auctions are different. Um, like I remember when the, it was, I think it was the alien technology went on to auction and that it, it was like it went up crazy prices for a packet. But people have used that in the future for breeding stock. It had a good little story behind it. Um, so, yeah, um, certain things sell. Um, but to have a release of, and if you've got thousands of packets and you're charging a huge amount for each packet, and I think that's down to morals, isn't it? A topic you just briefly touched on, auctions. We've seen a dramatic rise in the number of auctions, especially on Instagram recently. How do you feel about this? Does it feel like we have too many auctions? Are auctions a bad thing? I guess the thing I notice mostly is that people will often discredit really expensive purchases and say, oh, yeah, but it was for an auction. So, you know, kind of like different rules are in play right now. But, I mean, if they're just constantly happening, is it not the new norm? Are you talking like charity auctions or is it like just yeah, general I, auctions? I, the, the majority of them are charity auctions. I mean, I, I don't think I've really seen okay, one yeah. for charity, but yeah, it seems like they're just nonstop now on Instagram, wherever you look. Right. I remember a couple popping up and I donated some seeds and stuff like this. And I remember checking and they go for like crazy price for one packet. Um, but then it's for a good cause. Um if there's more and more and more of them popping up, maybe people need to look into it a little bit more about, you know, but yeah, I don't see it as a bad thing if it's uh, for charity and it's for a good cause. Um, people do it all the time with other other, other industries. Um, people will hold auctions and parties and stuff like that. And so, uh, yeah. Why not do it with some seeds as well if it goes to a good cause? Yeah, no worries. Alrighty, last question for the extended response. Is breeding an art or a science? You know, Do you think that you could pass all your knowledge on to someone or at the end of the day you need to have a certain something within you, You know, like a sense or a knack, whatever it may be you want to call it? Do you think that, yeah, it's, it's an art or it's a science? Um... I'd say it's a mix of both, yeah. Um, it's just things that you've learned along the way, and some things can't even be explained. It's just through things that you've seen. Um, but definitely you can teach people a lot and save them a lot of time by telling them what you know. Um, so I'd say it's a, it's a mix of both, definitely. It's a bit of art and a bit of science all mixed in okay awesome so now for our last little quick fire segment first question if you could go back to one place in time in history anywhere you want where would you go and what land race seeds would you be after okay um oh the 60s yeah um Afghanistan um, and maybe some old Persian seeds would be nice. Yeah. Oh, exotic. That sounds good. Okay. What's the worst thing to happen 
to the EU scene since you've been active in it, you know, so not just since you moved to Spain, since you've, you know, been essentially online or even just talking to people down the block? Um, shit feminized seeds. Ones that just don't even smell and taste good. And so what's your current favorite strain? Um, from, I'll say from this year, out of my things, Jungle Juice and Jungle Kush. Out of other people's stuff, I like Baldi's Soulmate this year and South Fork Seeds Cherry Chem. They're the things that are standing out this year from um, outdoors. And what's your favourite of all time? Oh... I'm really happy to have the Bubba Kush back. Just had that back. So I'm looking forward to that at the moment. Um, yeah, yeah, the list is too long just to pick one. But I'm happy to get the Bubba back. And I think uh, SFVOG Kush, yeah. yeah. Those two. SFV and Bubba, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people love the SFE, don't they? So, next question though. What is the worst strain you've ever had the privilege of trying or growing? <laughs> um, oh, I've grown a few packets of uh, greenhouse stuff that a friend gave me that it weren't very good. Um, what else? Something that I bought. Okay. I bought a packet of Soma Seeds NYC Diesel, expecting a nice NYC Diesel thing, and didn't find the NYC Diesel I was looking for. That was a little bit disappointing, I suppose. Um, but, yeah. Um, I think random seeds that people give you, and you think, okay, I'll try it out years ago, and you just find a lot of shit stuff from that as well. Yeah. <laughs> so what's the biggest mistake you see people making when they're growing um, overfeeding yeah um, giving the plant too many bottled feeds thinking that this is going to do this this is going to do that that's going to do that and they end up with weed that's had a build-up, doesn't burn very well. Um, yeah, so I think people that add too much to the plant. And what's a little breeding tip for all the aspiring breeders out there? Um, pick your favourite female, uh, one that you've worked with a while, and any packet of seeds that you've grown out that you're finding a lot of females you like collect a little bit of pollen dust it on something uh, grow those seeds out give them out for free yeah um, yeah I think that's the best best tip awesome so I think that one just about wraps it up for us thanks so much Banana Man for coming on the show and dropping all the knowledge on us is there any shout outs or comments you wanted to make um no i'd just like to yeah thank you for having me on the show um there's too many people to mention 
Uh, I'd like to thank anyone that's grown up my strains uh, over the last couple of years, sent me pictures, posted pictures up online, um, entered into cups. All of these people, these people make a difference. Um, yeah, thank you for growing my stuff. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on again. Nice one. Thank you. Alrighty, so a big, 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 big thank you to Banana Man. Thanks for stopping by, chatting. A big, big, big thank you to 420 Australia and OGS, two companies that are the lifeblood of this show, as well as our Patreon fans. These guys contribute in more ways than you'll ever know, and they're all getting great prizes for it. Feel free to check it out if you're interested or if you need an extra fix of the podcast. Otherwise, we'll see you. 